0: You're listening to a Tutor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th Annual Tutor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August, 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Soundcloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Sean Cunningham from the National Archives UK, entitled Understanding, Cooperation and Control, Richard Edgecombe and Henry VII's plan to rule in Ireland during the first years of Tudor kingship.
1: So, in um, the midsummer of 1488, the first formal English mission to Ireland from the new Tudor regime set off from Cornwall. At its head was the controller of Henry VII's household, Sir Richard Edgecombe, with 500 troops in four ships. He had an eventful journey over two days, clashing with three sets of pirates um, and raiders before he managed to land at Kinsale. Um, just as on land, Henry VII's power around the English coast remained weak, and his influence in Ireland was, was thinner still and Edgecombe had been dispatched to try and improve the situation. Edgecombe's mission was to sort out allegiance in the lordship following the crowning of Lambert Simnel as King Edward VI at Christchurch, Dublin, on the 24th of May, 1487. At the start of June, thousands of the Fitzgerald family's Irish allies joined with 2,000 German mercenaries sent from Flanders by Richard III's sister, Margaret of York, who Simon mentioned this morning, Um, to invade England, in a twist of the usual story, to invade England through the Furness area of Cumberland, and then they marched through Yorkshire and down past York um, to defeat at the Battle of Stoke near Newark on the 16th of June. So this preserved Henry VII's crown, but it left the problem of Ireland unresolved. And on the 13th of August, Kildare was still witnessing letters patent apparently issued under Edward VI's name, and in October, Henry knew from other letters that many of the Fitzgerald's network around Dublin still sympathised with the aims of the rebellion, whatever they actually were, whether that was regime change in England or stronger role within Ireland. Even after the drug of the Parliament in January 1488, Henry had to write directly to officials in the pale, instructing them to work harder to restore Thomas Butler, the absentee 7th Earl of Ormond. And he's annotated this document in his own handwriting... Basically to say he wasn't trusting his privy seal as an authoritative instrument and he should send all of his letters to Ireland under the great seal. So the king himself is unsure how his instructions are going to be received in Ireland. And also a letter from John O'Carroll to Ormond on the 17th of August 1487 gives a flavour of what was going on in Ireland itself where he complains that Ormond's lands are under pressure from the Fitzgeralds and only the return of the earl could actually save um, the lordship and the king's authority from further destruction. Henry VII's accession heralded the reward and promotion of his friends and allies, including the butlers, and the first English parliament in November 1485 had passed an act of resumption, restoring all, uh, revoking all grants made under the Yorkist kings back to 1455. So the rest- restoration of Ormond is part of that process, and this generates more uncertainty in Ireland, which had been very much a Yorkist stamp in the previous 30 years. That's because Edward IV's father, Richard, Duke of York, was a fondly remembered resident governor, and his son, George, Duke of Clarence, had been born in Dublin uh, in October 1449. And Edward, Earl of Warwick, his son, was the, the child or the boy who, O'Siminal impersonated um, and was Clarence's heir. The Fitzgerald... Dominated Anglo-Irish landowners, and when English governors were sent directly, as Lord Grave Codner was in 1478, these people were resisted through non-cooperation and direct petitioning for a return to a Fitzgerald in post as, as Lord Deputy. And in 1480, this was recognised by Edward IV in this agreement um, giving setting out Kildare's power under, under the king in Ireland. So there's a kind of problem for a new Tudor king to overcome in all of this Yorkist baggage in Ireland, as well as the problems in England itself. So how did Henry VII begin to address this? So Henry wrote in, um, in the start of, probably in the autumn of 1485, to the sergeant at law at Dublin, Jonas Street, um, who'd been in post um, for a while. Um, obviously, he's taken advice from the Earl of Ormond, but he'd not been in Ireland since the 1470s. So how objective his viewpoint was and how valuable his insight was, we can question. Um, a street had been invited to Westminster to join the, the King's Council to advise on Irish affairs. And um, in 1486, he received grants and rewards suggesting that his advice was at least well received and seen as useful. And Kildare lost no time either in the final months of 1485 in contacting Henry VII directly, asking for a continuation of his role as, as, as his deputy, of deputy of the king. He asked to remain in post for 10 years, um, and Henry's response was encouraging but vague, saying that no one could better advise the new regime nor bring Ireland into a state of obedience than the Earl himself. And Henry also referenced this agreement um, as an agreement in, in August 1480 which... Edward IV made with Kildare, um, appointing him deputy for four years uh, with a a guard of 80 archers and 400 foot soldiers, um, 40 horsemen as well, with annual expenses coming from Irish revenues. Uh, Interestingly, Henry wanted a face-to-face meeting um, with Kildare to to, to thrash out the terms of this agreement, almost to, to assess the quality of the person, and Henry's done this in 1487, after that Battle of Stoke in York, he's having interviews directly with rebel leaders. So he's very much gauging people from his own personal experience of their conduct and de- demeanour. And I think um, he wants to meet Kildare in these terms, in the, in the general situation he's facing. So Kildare is asking for a 10-year term with an allowance increased to £1,000 a year. And Henry's willing to offer the manner of Lexlip and the keeping of Wicklow Castle as well, um, if he's convinced that Kildare can be trusted to represent his power in Ireland. And he also says he's willing to offer a clean slate, saying there's no thing done by the Earl in time past, nor surmise or report on him made that shall turn his grace from the said Earl. So the opportunity is there for Kildare to serve the new regime in the way that Henry VII wants. And this might have been the extent of Henry VII's direct engagement with Kildare before Dublin became the focus for Lambert Simnel's plot. Um, and instead of accepting the English king's invitation to travel, the Fitzgerald be- Fitzgeralds became fully committed to the rebellion, even before all these mercenaries arrived in Dublin. So there's clearly an exchange of information that allows Henry to, to know what's going on, um, and he knows that the situation has to be addressed directly because almost um, despite the, the deaths of the Irish leaders and the Irish soldiers at, at Stoke, there's still all sorts of problems relating to the Sunal plot that need to be unravelled. So, Edgecombe's um, warrants are actually... Well, they're, they're still in Dublin City Archives, so Edgecombe's instructions from Henry survive here, setting out the terms of what he's expected to do. Um, he knows that no English lords were executed after this rebellion and that bonds and fines were the the main way of controlling people's behaviour. So Kildare, although he orchestrated the final stages of of this rebellion, he might have argued that even anointing another king of England in Dublin, he wasn't really taking a bond against the king directly. Um, He's still in control of, of Ireland on behalf of the king, although be it with his priorities and not the king's. And the Tudors remained vulnerable enough to know that the Kildare network offers the best way of of finding a way out of this situation. So there is a, a challenge to Richard Edgecombe here in representing the king's view when he arrives um, in 1488. And he arrives into um, to Kinsale, as we mentioned, um, and we know about this from a journal account um, of the journey. So this is a journal in the British Library, uh, which is a manuscript version of a, a printed version in um, Thomas Harris's Hibernica, which was published in 1757, um, And this manuscript version differs from the printed version in in some very interesting ways. First of all, it it recalls the text of the oaths that were imposed on the lords in Kinsale and then in Waterford. Um, It gives a sense of how Henry's beginning to think about using bonds and recognizances. They swore to be faithful leaders of the king, um, not to do anything to disturb his well-being or his peace, would not assist the king's enemies and um, they swore to reveal information about rebels or conspiracies that came to their attention. And Edgecombe then travelled up the coast, still reluctant to to make landfall. He arrives um, off Malahide and is greeted by John Street and the Bishop of Meath um, and taken into Dublin on the 5th of July, where he finds that Kildare has gone off on pilgrimage for five days and won't be there to meet him. So he... um, he lodges in um, the Blackfriars Monastery and waits for Kildare to come back. This gives him a chance to, to finalise his draft documents, um, looking at the text of oaths and getting, again, a sense of how people in Dublin are going to accept his mission and what he represents in the new T- Tudor power. And I think it's probably a misrepresentation of Kildare's um, awareness of the situation. It was obviously a deliberate act to not greet Edgecombe, um, but that obviously increases his suspicion of what's going on. He's not an insignificant figure, he's um, controller of the king's household and there's no doubt that had he survived beyond 1491 when he died on a mission to, to Brittany, that he would have become the expert on Ireland and not Edward Poynings. So on the 12th of July, Kildare and Edgecombe actually meet um, when the Earl rides in with 200 horsemen to St Thomas's Abbey and Tom, John Payne and uh, James Fleming, Lord Slane, meet him and asks Richard to go for a face-to-face interview at that point. And Edgecombe deliberately um, slights the earl in terms of not offering any any, um, recognition of his uh, senior status. Um, He delivers King Henry's letters directly and the king's message of displeasure at what um, what Kildare has done. And then he's given a five-day deadline to get all of the lords of the council together. Um, And on the 13th of July... Edgecombe has um, the Bishop of Meath proclaim at Christchurch the Pope's bull cursing all those who rebelled against Henry VII. This was the bull ad perpetuum rei memoriam, which was issued on the 17th of May in Rome, and it probably accounts for why Edgecombe's journey was delayed slightly, so he could bring this document to Ireland because it was specifically created to address this Irish rebellion and the problem of, of allegiance afterwards. The reading was immediately followed by the king's absolution and pardon for all those who would submit. And the next day, Edgecombe travels to Maynooth uh, to receive Kildare's assurance that he would agree to the king's demands. That improved the atmosphere and records the great cheer of the...
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so there's, there's a, a sense of acceptance that you know, things look like they're going to improve, but Sir Richard Edgecombe is wary of the duplicity here that possibly might be at work and overnight on the 15th and 16th of July, he's working out more measures that he's gonna try and apply to Kildare, to, to box him in almost, in terms of following the king's wishes. And one of the key ways he's doing this is, is this kind of obligation called a, an Obligation naisi, where Edgecombe is trying to basically say, um, this is a new form of bond, and it, it's binding the lords for their allegiance, um, And they basically didn't agree to this. They would not submit to this kind of bond because it was going to set up a a commissary court under representatives of the Archbishop of Canterbury and Richard Fox, the Bishop of Exeter, who would um, appoint a commission basically for Kildare to appear, have his confession and loyalty recorded by a notary, but then proclaimed publicly... So the public performance of the submission is a counterpoint to the private interview Henry wanted to achieve with Kildare. So the the punishment is almost like a public performance of of how England has subjugated Kildare at this particular point. Uh, The Earl Earl won't submit to this. Um, Other Lords also did not agree to be bound um, in the same way Um, and the Lords threatened basically to become Irish every one of them, as the journal says. Um, So again, it as Simon was talking about this morning, the implication being that all of these Anglo-Irish lords have a, an Irish connection they can activate as a, as a threat to the English control. So the, the situation resolved um, after an orchestrated um, response to the death of James III, which had happened on the 11th of June. People take to the streets um, to sort of, I guess, not acknowledge the, the battle of Sausheburne and his death, but basically as a way of disrupting Edgecombe's focus. Um, so it causes people to again come, come together for further discussions. And Edgecombe is mindful that he's meant to be resolving the previous problems rather than fermenting a new kind of uprising. So he, he backs down a little bit and looks for a different solution and he drafts the bonds again um, and actually ends up with a solution everyone can accept. And so we get these lists of the homages that people are willing, these are all the people willing to sign up to this bond and this agreement. Um, and the forms of the oaths are recorded as well, um, certified under each man's seal. Edgecombe wants his own chaplain to consecrate the host before the oaths are taken, but again, that's disputed. But eventually, on 21st of July, there's a, a Deum and a solemn ceremony uh, and a proclamation in the city, um, and Edgecombe's able to then go off to other places like Trim to begin to, um, to almost survey the king's interests away from Dublin. And he comes back after a few days with more certificates in his pocket, um, and this implies that Edgecombe considered his mission to be complete. Uh, the homages were recorded, the certificates were written up, um, and it looked like he'd backed down in the face of this block of Irish opposition to, to what he wanted to achieve. Um, a closer look at the manuscript, however, rather than the published edition, has the forms of all these recognizances that were taken. So clearly there were a lot of bonds submitted by the Anglo-Irish lords on the 21st and the 28th to the 30th of July, um, and Edgecombe wouldn't deliver up the pardons until he had these documents, of which these are obviously recorded copies. So there was a further piece of work, um, and, he, and he actually accumulates up to £60,000 worth of bonds from the Irish community here, which, um, had it been forfeited, would have obviously undermined and completely destroyed the resources of all the people involved. That is, if the king was in a position to press this demand, um, his intention was that the threat of the forfeiture by his own de- de- definition of acceptable behaviour, would at least f- force these guys to back down. But the bonds could never really be be tied in because Henry himself knew that to apply that pressure to destroy that community that had been built up and so experienced for so long would, would all but end his way of influencing affairs in Ireland. So in order to make his lordship more secure, Henry would then have had to have launched a military campaign um, to maintain the institutions of the pale, and he really wasn't in a position to do that at this particular time. He's still very actively trying to preserve Breton independence. He's thinking about invading France to distract the French king from that campaign. Uh, his resources are scattered. He's still fairly poor in terms of bringing in income. So he knows, as Kildare knows, that he you you could not press this demand um, too, too firmly. So, what are potentially crippling penalties on paper would not have actually worked out. And I've got a, I've got a table of all these bonds if anyone wants to see them. Um, and it's obvious that this is only really targeted at, at the Earl of Kildare. Morris, ninth Earl, Earl of Desmond, is, is completely absent from all of this process. He's not in Dublin, he's still in the Midlands. Um, He's not involved in this. And that basically gets him off the hook to to begin to support Warbeck um, and that second conspiracy in 1491. So you can see that although Edgecombe's mission um, did not really stabilise the condition of Ireland, it it provoked and it forced people into adjustments, but it aroused this suspicion that A. Henry Tudor was, was blustering with that real capacity to back things up so when Warbeck does appear and offers this second line of conspiracy, which again draws in former Yorkist supporters in England, um, he's basically demonstrated already that he can't back up the things he wants to do. So there has to be a rethink in the 1490s of how English power is going to be represented through Dublin into Ireland. And Edgecombe did not stabilise the condition of Ireland um, the record of his voyage does show much more of what he wanted to do, and the manuscript really does help us understand the toing and froing that went on in this particular um, expedition to Ireland in 1488. Um, but it ended as, a, as it started, after an eight-day return journey, being chased all over the Severn Estuary and, and the coast of Wales, to fi- finally getting back to Fowey in Cornwall. Um, but really, it's kind of a, a metaphor for the storms that Henry VII would have to endure in the 1490s. Thank you. Thank
0: you, Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.